Amen, church family, as you're seated, uh, please open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're still uh, in chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 33. Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading begins in Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do they have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Good morning to those who are tuning in online on the worship guides. Great to be with you this morning. And again, just great to be with the 8 o'clock crowd this morning. I, I'll just have to share a personal goal with you as the 8 o'clock crowd that you guys, over the next few weeks, lead the way, and this becomes the largest of the three services. That's a personal goal. There are naysayers, I'll just tell you, but I think we could do it. So thank you for being here early and making room for everyone else in the other services, but uh, glad, honored to be here with you this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and find your place there. We're going to wrap up this great chapter this morning and then just let you know, uh, in just a few minutes we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together as well as a church family and just a joy anytime we get to do that. So we'll be doing that in just a few minutes as well. I want to back up. We... We started a section last week, and we're going to kind of complete this section this morning. But let me, let me back up as we try to do, give you the broad overview again. We are in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, obviously part of the larger Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew writes, big purpose, big picture. Matthew writes his Gospel to declare that Jesus is the promised King. And throughout the pages of Matthew, he writes, and we continue to walk through this, unpack this, unfold this layer by layer. Jesus has come to establish and proclaim a new kingdom. And as he walks through this, we see that it's also a new way of kingdom living. This kingdom life that Jesus describes here. And man, we have seen that 
in detail in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. What does this kingdom life look like? We've seen that it's countercultural. The things that Jesus is calling us to, the life of kingdom citizens is countercultural and don't expect to be affirmed or applauded by the culture we live in. These things that we're being called to, us who have been declared righteous, this righteous way of life that we're called to, it's unnatural. We saw last week some of the things that Jesus is calling us to is not what comes naturally to us. And this righteousness we saw that Jesus is declaring, he's calling us to, he's declaring us to be righteous by faith in him alone. Jesus steps in, Matthew 5, 20, and we talked about he drops a bombshell right in the middle of the scribes and the Pharisees and that day because there was a brand or a kind of righteousness that was taught and modeled by the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It was a twisted, distorted, self-centered, humanly achievable kind of righteousness that exalted and only created pride in those scribes and Pharisees of his day. So Jesus steps in and drops a bombshell. Matthew 5.20. We've looked at it the last few weeks. It's the pivot verse. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, far surpasses, goes way beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bombshell. So the big truth that we've been pulling through is this. Over the last few weeks, God demands an exceeding kind of righteousness. A totally different quality of righteousness altogether than this external self-righteousness that had been modeled by the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. We said last week, what is this kind of righteousness? Really important, we get this. We said, the righteousness that God demands is no less than the very righteousness of Jesus himself. It's nothing that can come from you. This positional righteousness, graciously granted by God on the basis of faith alone. That's this positional, declarative righteousness that every child of God possesses by faith. Turning from myself, embracing by faith the finished work of Jesus. We said last week also, it's not just a positional righteousness. Those who are positionally righteous, this is huge, will live righteous lives. It will be on display. You will live a characteristically, qualitatively different kind of life because you have been made new, because of Christ in you. So we said last week, those who possess the righteousness of Jesus will possess or will pursue righteous living. And what does that look like? Wholeheartedly obeying God's righteous word. What does that look like? Well, Jesus has given us six examples right here in Matthew chapter 5 of what it means to wholeheartedly, from a place of declared righteousness, been made righteous, but pursuing righteous living in wholehearted obedience to his word. Now, one of the things you're going to see as you walk through this and as you read through this, if you haven't seen it already, the Pharisees had a really good capacity and tendency to distort and twist God's word and try to 
narrow the gap between his perfection and their own sinfulness, they would lower the bar of righteousness. They would empty God's righteous word of its meaning. And, and just to be real honest, you're going to see this this morning. They would just lower the bar of the standard that God calls us to. Or they had a really neat way of finding escape clauses. I know what the scripture says, but, but here's kind of an end around, around that. I, I, I'm going I'm to lower the bar so I can humanly achieve righteousness. Or I'm going to take God's word and I'm going to distort it. Or I'm going to take something in scripture that was never intended to be normative. And I'm going to make it the norm. We saw that last week. We saw examples one through three last week. You can go back and listen to that. But Pharisees had reduced love for neighbor as yourself as basically avoiding the act of murder. Okay, if I avoid the act of murder, I'm good. They had reduced the pursuit of moral purity from our heart in response to the purity and the holiness of who God is, basically to avoiding the act of adultery. If, if I avoid that act, I'm good. They'd lowered standard of God's righteousness. They had reduced the institution of covenant marriage merely to an external arrangement which was easily dissolvable by a thing called the certificate of divorce. They had lowered God's ideal and his standard of what marriage was intended to be. One man, one woman for life. God's standard. You see that play out last week and you're going to see that play out a little bit this week. Jesus is going to give us three more examples. Now again, these examples represent a righteous pursuit. We are pursuing wholehearted obedience as those who have been made righteous to the word of the living God. So let me give you three more this morning. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said. You were here last week. You've been reading through. You know, this is a formula Jesus uses over and over. He will, he will state and declare You've heard this, you've understood the scriptures this way, you've, you've heard the intent of God's word this way, but I, Jesus, the authoritative lawgiver, God himself, I say to you, and he's taking what was twisted in their minds and trying to straighten it out according to the intent of God's word. As you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not bear, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus is going to deal with the issue here of trustworthiness in our speech. The Pharisees had found the capacity to take the commandments of God. Behind this is the ninth commandment, really kind of the low hum of the ninth commandment goes through this. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the heartbeat behind that was pretty clear that, that, that loving your neighbor from the heart is to speak truth to your neighbor. From a heart of truthfulness, a heart of trustworthiness. But the Pharisees had lowered the bar. They had found some escape clauses and some runarounds and basically 
This was their outward action. <laughs> Our word is trustworthy. When we have made a vow to the Lord. But we hadn't made a vow to the Lord, then it's not quite as binding. And they had legislated, if you will, deception and deceit. Now let me, let me just explain this a little further. Again, behind this is the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Behind that is loving your neighbor as yourself means to speak truth from the heart. Problem. You ready for this? It's early. Here's the problem with all of us. We lie naturally. That's what we do. My heart. Your heart. We naturally shade the truth. We naturally add a little bit here. Take a little bit away there. We naturally sometimes say things that we really, well, I really, really meant that. But I didn't quite mean that as much. As if our word is ever less binding than any other time that we as God's people are to be known for speaking truth and the characteristic of trustworthiness. Why? Because our God is truth. The Pharisees had found an escape clause. They, they were trying to narrow the gap. They, God in the Old Testament as a restraint, this is huge, on human sinfulness, ordained in Israel some things called oaths, some things called vows. An oath was basically an invocation of God or some object to undergird the statement of promise. So there were at times that God called the people of Israel to declare oaths. It was never to be the normative or the common practice of the day. He instituted that because of human sinfulness. Because, here, because we have a hard time being trustworthy and we have a very hard time trusting the word of others, right? You believe everything you hear, right? No, we don't. So God, because of human sinfulness, instituted something called an oath to be used very rarely on rare occasions as unto the Lord only. The Pharisees created an escape clause of God's righteous standard of trustworthy by considering binding in their speech only the oaths they made unto the Lord. They had legislated deception. Jesus exposes it, verse 34. He said, are you kidding me? Basically paraphrasing. He says, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. He's going to give some examples of oaths they would take and they would intentionally leave out the name of God. And in their mind, what's this? This is so subtle. If they didn't invoke the name of God, the oath was not binding and they really were not expected to keep their word. They legislated deception. It's like this. Listen, I promise I'm going to do such and such. I promise I'll be somewhere. I promise I'll do what I say. You turn around and walk off and I go, I'm crossing my fingers. I didn't really mean it. They created an escape clause because in their heart, naturally we deceive. 
And if you're not going to recognize your brokenness and cry out to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you better find a way to get around God's righteous standard. And that's what they do here. They find an escape clause. So they say, okay, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. In other words, you think because you use the word heaven and don't invoke the name of God, it's not a binding oath? He says, do you not know that heaven is the very throne of God? How foolish. He says, or by earth. That was another oath they would use. Do you not recognize earth as God's footstool? Or by Jerusalem. They would make an oath by Jerusalem. And in their minds it wasn't binding because it was Jerusalem. They didn't invoke the name of God. He says, do you not realize that's the city of the great king? And do not take an oath by your head. They would make a promise by the hair of their head. You know, something like what we would say. I promise, cross my heart, hope to die. Something like that. They would make these oaths by their head. And he says, do you not realize you cannot even make one hair white or black? You make this promise by your head as if it's not binding. Do you not realize God is sovereign over every part of your life? And the notion was this. Somehow my word that comes from my mouth at times is to be of greater trustworthiness than at other times. Again, this external means of pursuing righteousness rather than truthfulness in the very heart. It would be something like this. Listen, you, you better tell the truth if you're in church as if speaking your word here is to be more binding than, ready for this, when you're typing on Facebook. <laughs> we play the same games at times. We give ourselves escape clauses and we lower the bar, making ourselves, here's the key, less dependent upon the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, to transform our minds and transform our lives. It's to make us more dependent. Jesus gives an application. Okay, what do we do with this? I, I love this. You've heard this before. Here's the context. Verse 37, he says this. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Other translation, New American Standard, I think the King James says it this way, and you've heard this. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and anything you feel like you need to, be on, to say beyond this could come from a place of evil, meaning I, I really am not that trustworthy, so I've got to add something to it. I've got to heap a promise on it. Or I really don't trust you. Do you promise? Do you swear? Do you cross your heart? Do you? The people of God are to be characterized by trustworthiness. That our yes, this is incredible. That the simplicity of Jesus' words are astounding to me. Our yes is to mean yes. Our no is to mean no. And anything beyond that is of evil. Now again, I'm not going to spend much time on this. This is not implying that we are never to take vows. We are never to take oaths. There are places for those. But they are to be rare. Those exist because of our evil. Because we, we struggle to trust one another. And we struggle to be trustworthy. The norm the pursuit of the heart of a Jesus follower is this, big idea. God's redeemed people pursue truthfulness in every word we say. We're to be characterized by that. That's a kingdom way of life. 
Your yes is yes, and your no is no. Just real quick, would that, would that transform the workplaces where Christians work if their yes was yes and their no was no? Would that transform and be salt and light if you're a boss and you lead others and your yes is yes and your no is no? Would that transform relationships that you're a part of? Would that transform marriages? Would that transform your parenting to your children if what you say is yes and intended to be yes and meant to be yes and turns out to be yes and your no's, you say no and they turn out to be no? Would that transform your parenting? people of God are to be characterized by truthfulness, trustworthiness from the heart that comes out in every word we say. Amen? Countercultural. That's unnatural, I assure you. And oh, by the way, impossible apart from the power of the spirit of truth living within us. Amen? Example number four. Let me go move on quickly. Jesus gives a fifth example. Verse 38. He says, same formula, you have heard that it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many of y'all were reading through Matthew and you'd heard this somewhere and you had no idea that little phrase came out of the Bible? Because we say that. You hear that a lot even in culture. Well, eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. It's this law of retribution. I have the right to avenge myself or retaliate against you at this level. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You crash into the side of my car, I'm going to drive over to your house and crash into the side of your car. You call me something, I'll return in kind. This law of retribution. The Pharisees took this statement that was given in the Old Testament in multiple places. Now, I want you to hear this because this is the understanding of why Jesus says what he says here. He says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Here's what they practiced, what they outwardly believed and taught. Righteous living operates by the law of retribution. It's completely within my rights. If I've been wronged, I can respond in kind. If I've been offended, I can respond in kind. Why? Because the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, occurs four different places in the Old Testament. In every occasion, it is in the context of a formal trial. It's huge. The Pharisees took this phrase, given in Exodus 21, given in Leviticus 24... Listen, given by God because of evil to curb the civil authorities from disproportionate retribution. It was was to be used in civil authorities. It was to be used in government, if you will. They had taken this and then moved it into the realm of personal relationships and into the realm of personal offenses. And believed they had every right to fully operate under the law of retribution. God had given this to civil authorities. They took it and said, hey, that's the way I'm going to operate within personal relationships. Okay, what does that mean? How does that play out? Jesus says, no, 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 no. no. That's not the intent and the heart of God. Verse 39, but I say to you, 
Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, again, in context, you have to translate this and interpret this by the rest of Scripture. This is not speaking of a criminal offense. Not talking about that. It's not speaking of acts of military aggression. This is not pacifism necessarily. It's not what Jesus is talking about. The intent here in what Jesus is doing is going beyond this external claim of my rights. You do that to me. I have every right to come right back at you. Here was the intent of what Jesus was saying. Personal revenge, retaliation, settling the score, an eye for an eye is not to be part of the life of a Jesus follower. That's not how kingdom citizens operate. It's not to characterize the kingdom of God. Again, they've taken this out of the realm of civil authorities and brought it into personal relationships. So Jesus then is going to give an application. And these are not intended to be rules that he's giving here or perfect examples. There's principles behind each one of these. Verse 39, he says, okay, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... I'm going to give a few examples in that day. Listen, if you're in that day, someone comes up and they slap you on the right cheek, that was known and accepted to be the most offensive, insulting thing anyone can do to you. Uh, by the way, a right-handed person who slaps you on the right cheek, here's what that means. They took and they did it with their backhand and they backhanded you across the face. Is that not one of the most insulting things that could ever occur in that day? You better believe it especially. Jesus says someone backhands you across your right cheek, they harm your dignity, they cast at you a demeaning insult. It, it, again, it goes way beyond. It's not just talking about the hand. It's this demeaning insult that someone hurls at you. How do you respond? Naturally, I'm ready to retaliate in kind because you've wronged me and I have the right to retribution against you. Jesus says, turn to him the other also. If you were standing there and you heard that, your jaw drops and you realize that's an impossible posture of my heart. And that's the point. It is. Only those who are born again by the Spirit of Christ entrusting themselves to their Father can ever respond when we were offended like that because we trust our Father. It's not us to take revenge. Now listen, practically, this is not saying that we can't defend ourselves. That's, that's not what this is saying. Someone comes after us. Someone means violence for us. This is talking about when you are insulted. Someone has come against you. They've offended you in this way. You do not have the right as a follower of Christ to claim your rights and retaliate in kind. And hurl an insult or a demeaning word at them. Would that change social media today? He goes on. He gives another one. He says, if anyone would sue you. Or take your tunic. He's going to say it's better to suffer loss even of possessions than to retaliate in the courts. He says let him have your coat also. In other words, even the security. There's even a commandment in the Old Testament. Is you can take everything from somebody, but you can't take their coat because it was seen as so much of a security in that day. They had very few coats. And the idea is even a loss of personal possessions and personal security at times is the posture we take because we entrust ourselves to God. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If you read that, you say, what in the world is that all about? I don't even get that. In that day, 
Palestine, that area was under Roman control. It was given to a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier. He could demand, he could conscript Jews to carry his equipment or in the day that Jesus was crucified can conscript someone to carry a cross. Joseph of Arimathea, that's where it came from. So if I'm a Roman in that day, I can just call on a Jew and say, hey, I need you to carry my bag a mile. Law said you can only do it a mile. Can you imagine the hatred the Jews had toward Roman soldiers when that happened? You, you, you want, you're in my land. You're the enemy. You're Gentiles. And now you want me to carry your bag? Jesus said, what comes natural is you start fighting for your rights and claiming your rights. He said, here's what's supernatural. Go two miles. <laughs> go two miles. Supernatural. Verse 41, anyone who forces you to go a mile, go two. Imagine the power of the witness when redeemed born-again Jews in that day, Peter or John or some of those guys, instead of screaming for their rights, and retaliating against this Roman soldier, looked at this lost Gentile in the name of Jesus Christ and said, all right, you know what, I'll carry it too. What is, what is going on with you? I have been transformed by the love and the power of a man named Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead. The power of that kind of witness. Verse 42, he goes on, he says, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What does this mean? Again, the second time, I'll just give you, this is not foolish giving to anyone and everyone. This is within the realm of discernment, but it's that we, as followers of Christ, are to be salt and light and marked by lavish generosity giving to those in need. It's to be what characterizes us. Jesus says, you live your life tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Someone offends me, then I'm going to come right back at you. That is not the heart of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The big idea is this. God's redeemed people pursue God. When wronged, entrusting ourselves to Him who judges righteously. Well, I gotta get revenge. I, I gotta I gotta pay it back. I gotta take care of that. I've been wronged, I've been offended, I have rights. You want me to do this? This is unfair. It's a loss of liberty, it's a loss of privilege. On and on and on. Jesus says, hold on. So why in the world would we model something so ridiculous in this world? And the ultimate reason is that's exactly the life that Jesus Christ lived when he was on earth particularly when he was wrongly tried, slapped across the face, had everything he owned taken, and went to the cross unjustly. And what was his attitude? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Talked about that earlier. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, Jesus, did not threaten but continued, and here's the key, this is 1 Peter 2, continued entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who judges justly or righteously. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Jesus did not live by the law of retribution, but the law of exceeding love. 
because he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. That's the righteous calling on your life and my life. It's unnatural. It's countercultural. And I promise you, it is impossible apart from a new birth and being transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's salt, I assure you, and it's light in a decaying world and the world that's growing darker and darker and darker. Sixth example quickly and we'll be done. Verse 43 really takes it even a step further that boggles the mind of the hearer of that day of what Jesus is about to say. It says this, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sounds reasonable. Makes sense. The outward action of the Pharisees of this day was, of course we love our neighbor, but you got to let us define who our neighbor is. Because there, there are many who live outside of that realm of neighborliness. you got to let us define that. Oh, we'll love those who we want to love, but we have every right to hate those that we consider our enemies. Behind this is Leviticus 19.18. Jesus explains it and interprets it in Matthew 22. We'll get there later when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And, you know, the answer, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, which the Pharisees conveniently left out that little phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, the whole law depends on these two. Everything in the law, every do, every don't flows out of these two. A Love of our, our God, a love of our neighbor as ourselves. Pharisees had trouble defining what neighbor meant, so Jesus helped them when he taught the, par- uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is our neighbor. Much more broad than you might think, Pharisees, in your mind. Neighbor refers to the broad sense as the other person. Just the other person. Jesus comes back in verse 44, deals with the attitude of the heart, and he says, but I say to you, I just got to tell you, this is one of those statements. If you've been there, it's a jaw-dropping statement to those who are hearing. They can't even conceive of this. But I say to you, you have lowered the bar of God's righteousness. I'm calling you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Countercultural, completely unnatural, and I assure you, impossible left to our own strength. The word love here, you know this, you've heard this. Jesus uses the word agape here. This is not a natural type of love. It is a God-like, supernatural type love. In that day, they knew the word phileo, which was friendship. They got that. They knew eros, which was sexual love. They knew storge, which was this familial love. Jesus calls them to this agape type love, God-like love, selfless, sacrificial, giving type love for the benefit of the recipient. This type of love springs from the nature of the giver regardless of the worthiness of the recipient. Do you hear that? That's awesome. Agape love flows from the, the, the person giving regardless of how worthy you are as the recipient. That's the kind of love God shows on us sinners. Aren't you glad? 
that God's love is not determined toward us by our worthiness to receive his love, but within him as who he is, as perfectly capable of love without measure. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, verse 45. Then he gives some illustrations quickly. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Back to that idea, it's not that you become a son of heaven. Jesus is saying here, that's, that's what sons of heaven live like. It's a manifestation outwardly of who you are inwardly is how you love. And oh, by the way, not just how you love those that are easy to love, not those that you love that are just in your convenient little group, the other person, those other than you, even those who might come against you, even those that you might call your enemy. He says this is a supernatural kind of love. God models this. Verse 45, he, God, makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. It's an illustration of the sun shining on all men and women as an example of God's unlimited, undeserved love. Like the sun shining in the lives of those who don't deserve it. He sends rain on the just and unjust. God's common grace given to all men. This act of love that flows from the very nature of God. He comes back at these Pharisees and really gets in their business. Verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you. your only pursuit of God-like love is those that are easy to love, those that are within a certain group that you're comfortable with? He says, what reward do you have? And then this was highly offensive to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, do not even the tax collectors do that? To the Pharisees who thought themselves so righteous, he says, your understanding of righteous God-like love, it's no different than the tax collectors. He comes back and he says, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the dirty Gentiles, do the same. You have lowered the standard of God's righteous love. Big idea, last one. Here we go. God's redeemed people pursue a godlike love even for our enemies. Even for those who might cause us harm. Even for those who might come at us and persecute us. It's not natural. It's countercultural. And I assure you it's impossible apart from the power of Christ in us. That's the point. We are poor in spirit in desperate need of the grace of God. That's the point. A couple quick applications on this and then we're going to move into our time of Lord's Supper together. In fact... The team can come on up and just begin to play. We're going to move into a time of response here. But I, I want you to hear this. A couple takeaways from this. Number one, aren't you glad that God extends love to his enemies? According to the book of Romans, before you came to Christ, you were not just in opposition. You were not just an unbeliever. You were an enemy. So was I. Within the gospel is the message, Romans 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You were enemies. Aren't you glad God extends this kind of love even to his enemies? Secondly, I want you to know something practically. There's an evangelistic tone to this verse here. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Because here, there was a time that you could 
bear a Christian witness, even in our nation, and people might disagree, they might reject, they might oppose. But let me just be quite honest with you. In 2021, it is highly likely that not only will someone reject the message of the gospel, your true witness, they might oppose you, they might even come after you, and you might be tempted to call those people enemies. And you might be right. Here's what I want you to hear really clearly. Let's not forget as the people of God, those people we might want to call our enemies that oppose us, even come after us. Scripture says they're the mission field. They're the mission field. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Ultimately, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. We don't lower the standard. Why? Because your heavenly Father is perfect. We don't lower the standard of our pursuit of the righteousness of God because we would misrepresent the standard bearer. But by the power of God, we are made righteous. And by the power of Christ in us, we pursue a life of righteousness. It's countercultural, it's unnatural, and it is impossible apart from the power of God. Now what I want to do is I want to just lead us into a time of taking the Lord's Supper together really as a response to this week and last week. I mean, we've, we've been challenged in our heart of hearts by the Word of God. I have, and I think you have too. So I just want to invite you to move into really a, a posture of response, a posture of, Lord, you're dealing with my heart on some things. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. If you haven't picked up, picked up one of the little cups, you can certainly go out and do those in the foyer. They're there for you. But let's ask you some questions on this. First of all, what kind of righteousness do you possess? Is it a self-righteousness? Is it a righteousness you can achieve? Or is it the supernatural kind of righteousness given by faith and faith alone in the finished work of Jesus? kind of righteousness do you practice as we've read through this chapter of chapter 5 and Matthew has been so convicting it what's your view of others do we see others as God sees them what is your pursuit of reconciliation and forgiveness like before you take the Lord's Supper this morning there may be some points of confession this is the time when we're called in Scripture before the Lord's Supper to examine our heart. Lord, is there anything between you and me that I need to confess, make right, repent of? Lord, is there anything between me and a brother that you're calling to mind? Before I go to the altar, leave the altar, go and make it right with my brother or sister. It may need to happen. Are you pursuing purity from the heart in response to the holiness of your God? Are you honoring God's plan of marriage? the way he intended it is your yes yes and your no no how do you respond when offended did you respond this week to God or did you respond in kind eye for an eye tooth for a tooth you need to confess that before the Lord make that right before the Lord you may need to go make it right with a brother or sister is your love conditional with escape clauses and oh well that doesn't mean or is it unconditional godlike sacrificial love even 
to those that oppose and hurt you. The kind of righteousness we're called to pursue only possible because we've been made righteous in Christ Jesus. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to invite you to take a minute there in your own seat. Scripture's clear to call us that Jesus took the bread, he took the cup the night he was crucified, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Then Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, okay, when we do this regularly as the people of God, it's to be a time of worship, of remembering and it's to be a time of examination. So just with your head bowed for just a moment, a moment of worship, I'm going to ask you, is there anything you need to confess? Is there anything you need to make right with the Lord? Is there a, a step of action that you may need to get up and go do right now in regard to offending a brother? Is there a brother or sister that has ought against you? Jesus would say, go, make it right. Then come back. Take the Lord's Supper.